The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 155 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. We have got such a great conversation for you. But before we get into that, I do want to thank our reviewers on Apple Podcast. We got a, a five-star review from Holly. Holly, thank you so much for your kind words. We really appreciate it. Uh, this week, my guest on the show, Sam Dolan, is a friend of mine and a such an amazing guy. I've known uh, Sam's wife since, gosh, we were probably 12, 13 years old, uh, but I've gotten to know Sam over the last few years. Uh, He is the owner of Crossroads Academy, where he does incredible work with struggling young men, and he tells us his story. It is unbelievable. We've we've done 155 episodes uh, now, but this is definitely one of my favorite conversations. I just loved it. And coming up uh, this week in my Latter-day life, uh, I'll tell you a little story about one time that I got to be the one with a very special servant of God. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here live in the Latter-day Live studios, a friend of mine uh, who is changing the lives of so many youth and doing so much good work and has a great story of his own, Sam Dolan. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. Happy to be here. We've been working on this for a while, so I'm glad we were finally able to put it together. A little bit of background for our audience. Sam and I met because I grew up with Sam's wife. And actually, we kind of grew up together, but you and I didn't really cross paths then. Probably saw each other at dances or something. I'm sure we did. I'm sure. But uh, Sam married one of the coolest girls I grew up with. Uh, Mel's one of just the best. So So far out of my league. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know about that. I won't comment on that. But uh, your wife is just a phenomenal soul. So it's just awesome. I'm glad you're here. We're going to get into a lot of the work that you do. Uh, and I want to hear all about that. But first of all, let's get to know you. Tell us where you're from. All right. I uh, grew up in Campbell, California, which is just a few minutes away from you in San Jose. I grew up with, uh, with a family. There's six of us kids. Uh, mm-hmm. We got three older brothers, an older sister, and one younger brother. And Campbell, the, the area I was in, the, the elementary school, I was the only Mormon kid yeah. um, that I knew of. And uh, yeah, it was, it was hard growing up Mormon for me. I had, yeah, I had a really hard time. Yeah, you found it challenging. At what, at what age did it start to feel difficult? So elementary school for sure. Um, I mm. remember probably yeah you know, third or fourth grade. My one of my best friends. He uh, we there was a we were having an ice cream sundae party. You know, mm. in the cafeteria, and the teacher yeah. just talked about it, and and my friend raises his hand and goes. Mrs. Anderson, Sam can't go to the party because it's a Sunday party, you know, <laughs> right? Like the Mormon kid that can't do anything on Sundays, and yeah, and so I was embarrassed for sure. Yeah. That was that was tricky, which I did, definitely didn't like. I yeah, so yeah. Was, so what else were you into uh, growing up? Um, yeah, I got really into into sports. I loved volleyball. I did a lot of skateboarding. This is into yeah. taking risks, you know, yeah. for sure. I think they've finally found that that thrill-seeking gene, and I'm pretty sure I had it. Yeah. I still like the thrills, love the you know, I know that about you. Yeah, right. So growing up doing all of these activities and whatnot, uh, at what age, I know there's a time that you decided, uh, there came a time that you decided, hey, I don't really want to be super active in the church right now. You went through some rough times. When did that start? Started, I mean, if you if I really look back, I mean, it started at 12 almost, like 11, 12. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I remember the Sunday school president telling me I have to get to class, you know, to go to Sunday school. And I remember saying, Hey, man, I follow God's plan, you know, free agency, you're following <laughs> Satan's plan, but <laughs> and I would get a lot of phone calls home. <laughs> 
about not going to class because I'd be going to Seven Eleven or whatnot. And <laughs> Did you do early morning seminary? Oh yeah, but I, I was in sleeping in the chapel or yeah. my car. Or we ended up at so. Winchell's a lot during <laughs> right. I got a cumulative one year graduation certificate for my yeah. four years they gave me. So yeah, so it just started out just young like that where I was always I questioned. I questioned always. I in my mind I just I wondered. You know, they'd say God knows everything. Does God know I'm going to do this? Even the listeners can't see it. But I would seriously, I'd be like, there's no way God knows I'm moving my hand like this. And from really? a young age. And, so and, you had some deep thoughts because I was yeah. inactive in my teen years. Uh, but it was more because I wanted to do stupid things. I had zero deep thoughts. I still don't <laughs> think I've had a deep thought since. But you were going through some real questioning. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then once, you know, like, alcohol got introduced to it. It was like, oh, I'm going to try it. You know, in seventh grade, yeah. I remember somebody spiked the punch. It's like, oh, I'm for sure going to try this. And yeah. and then it just kind of started from there. And But I wanted nobody, I didn't want to rebel against my parents. I, yeah. I wanted to look good. I had the Eddie Haskell kind of thing. Adults thought I was this amazing <laughs> kid, you know. <laughs> I think in sixth grade, I got a plaque for Citizen of the Year or stuff. I mean, I looked good. But on the inside, I just, I wasn't really having it. And, yeah. and, and so, yeah, the... The partying kind of started and just kept getting progressively, you know. Did your parents know this was going on? No clue. No, no idea. No. So you really were Eddie Haskell. You were one way at home, one way, you know. I, I would come home at midnight for my curfew, say goodnight, and go right back out the back door. Yeah. You know? I mean, that was. I ran that plan <laughs> right? a couple times. It worked well. A few I mean, times, was... yeah. It was the check in and check out. Uh, right. <laughs> so you started drinking, I mean, we know gospel principle that, that doing those things, that you can't be Eddie Haskell forever. Yeah. No man can serve two masters. Yeah. It feels like it as a teenager, I'm going to put on a show here and do this here. Yeah. But it starts to it starts to take its toll. So you started, for lack of a better word, partying quite a bit from a young age. Yeah. And then by the time I graduated high school, then it started getting really bad. And so, I mean, I was lots of blackouts. I wouldn't remember mm. you know, how I got to places. All drinking? Yeah, drugs as yeah. well, pot. and So, uh, you know, by the time you're getting ready to graduate high school, and especially back then, you know, we're talking about the late 80s, everyone and their dog is asking you if you're going on a mission. Yes. <laughs> I think now we've gotten better at knowing that that's not a great question. Right. You're better off a little asking. Better. <laughs> I, I hope, gosh, I hope we've gotten better. Right. The, the better question is, you're getting ready to graduate, what are your plans exactly. rather than... Totally. But, but definitely in the late 80s, it was going on a mission, going on a For mission. Sure. You're going to get your eagle and then you're going to go on your mission. Yes. Are you? Did you get your eagle? <laughs> Dude, I'm so stupid. I did my eagle project and then I blew off my border <laughs> review. <laughs> You did the project. I did the project. Oh, no, But I'm Sam. like, I'm not getting my eagle like for my mom. Oh. And, and my mom and the scoutmaster. It's like this, how many eagles per ward is better than the other wards. You know what I'm saying? And I just remember getting the shotgun merit badge and never even shooting a shotgun. I'm like, this is oh a joke. Oh, my gosh. Like, that's funny. And I was always embarrassed to scouts. I would never wear a uniform. So it's like, yeah. I don't. Part of me, on some level, knew that I don't deserve an eagle anyhow because right. I'm not into this. I think it's, right. I, mean, I didn't like it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so it was getting the eagle. That was the first time I really let my parents down by not getting the. See, eagle. See, I like to just think you were prophetic and ahead of your time. You knew the church was going <laughs> right. to phase it out. Totally. You knew said, that, dude. <laughs> you said, "Everybody, relax. It's coming." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, were your parents really disappointed in that? Uh, a little bit, for sure. Yeah. Um, and that so, was right when I turned 18, you know, like they were going to have the board for me, like, cause I finished the project before that, right. you know, and my, I was still 18 and, but at that point and then, yeah, that mission Did you question, just drop it or did you just say, I'm not going? Yeah. So I'm not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. And then the mission question comes up. So I kept saying I was going to go, you know, I tell everyone oh, okay. I was, I was going to go and. It, deep down, and, did you believe that at all? Did you think it was an option or was it like, I just want them off my back? Well, no, I actually thought I was going to go and not, and I mean, in my mind, I thought, you know, I'll marry this Mormon girl someday and I'll live mm -hmm. that life, whether I believe this stuff or not. But it was just like, yeah, you know, Mormon girls are good girls and, yeah. and, you know, and so I'll go on a mission and, 
And so I kind of did what I was called planned repentance. You know, I'm like, okay, I got a year now before I, I have to straighten up to go on my mission at 19, you know. Mm -hmm. Then I'd hear about somebody that went on their mission six months, you know, after partying, you know. And so, yeah. so they partied up until six months before their mission. So then I pushed it out another six months. And then, oh, so-and-so winning. So I was just kind of doing that. And at some point I said, what am I doing? Like, I, I'm literally planning out this repentance thing. Yeah. I have no desire to really do a mission for me. And I was using a ton of drugs and alcohol. And so this is like, I'm not going. And so eventually you're, you're, you're 19 years old and you're still using and partying and mm -hmm. the mission's not right there at your doorstep. Yeah. And that just kind of led until I was about almost 21. Um, and I was just, I was going to the local community college, getting by with, you know, C's yeah. and B's and, and I just gotten accepted into San Diego State. It was easy back then. Yeah. <laughs> C's and B's and I got, great. got in and um What kind of pressure did you have on you and, and this time from say nineteen to twenty one, were you going to church or had you just walked away from it? And what was happening with, with your parents and your family at this time? So my parents, I kept telling them, Yeah, I might go at some point, but not right now. And then, you know, I would maybe once or twice a month pretend I was going to go to church because you have the young adult word, you know? Mm, yeah. And so I'd, you know, say I'm going and I'd just go somewhere else and do something else. So so they didn't really know. Again, because I, I didn't want to look bad, you know? Yeah, and you cared and, about your parents. Uh, yeah, And you totally knew cared. how important it was to them. Yep. Um, but eventually, I, they got it that I wasn't they, that I wasn't going to go. I, I eventually said, "Hey, it's it's not for me." Mm. Um, and I don't remember it being because uh, it you know it was already now a full year and a half after I turned nineteen, and so I think they just kind of accepted it at that point. And at least among my friends from San Jose, not a lot went past twenty. Like it was. Yeah. That 19 to 20, that was the range at the time. And if you got past 20, you just sort of didn't go. Mm -hmm. So you're you're going to school. What came next? So I, uh, I mean, this is, uh, you know, when I'm heavily using, I ended up, you know, I would, yeah, like I said, tons of blackouts. And mm. so I would drive under the influence all the time. I mean, I was an, I was an idiot, but I was the good drunk driver, you know, and so after Cactus <laughs> Club and One Step Beyond. We'd be at these places. You were the designated. I was the designated <laughs> drunk driver. It was so, oh man, right? I mean, crazy. terrifying. I yeah. mean, Sam, you shouldn't be alive. No, and and I was such an idiot. And you just, but you think you're invincible, and that's what adolescents today do. And we'll get more into that as well. But you just think you're invincible, and so yeah, so yeah. So I would drive under the influence all the time, and it was early October, the first weekend in October, that I was. Uh, driving home from one of my friend's house. I had, you know, it was probably maybe one in the morning. You were about 20 at this time? I was 20. I was a few months away from turning 21. Gotcha. And so I'm, I'm on the way home and I blacked out. I passed out at the wheel and I woke up and I had hit two parked cars. So I totaled my car and two other cars mm. and, and I wasn't wearing a seatbelt and, and, uh, but I ended up walking away from that. Um, wow. got arrested and, and went to jail. Um, worst night of my life. You, know, you don't want to be in a big cell with a bunch of other drunks. You know, you don't sleep at all. It was, it was brutal. Um, so then my friend, one of my good friends, comes and picks me up from jail that morning, and I end up going back to his apartment. And you know, I'm he let me lay down on his bed. You know, and so I'm laying on his bed and laying there and. Pretty much all I wanted to do is die. I mean, I literally wished I had died in that accident. It was because yeah. now everybody's going to know I can't right. be Eddie Haskell anymore. I mean, it's yeah, you know, your world. My are parents are going to know I drove under the influence. I mean, they didn't even know I was drinking. You know, I mean, that's yeah. how good I hit it. And 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 so yeah, like my world is just going to be upside down. And and so I wasn't going to kill myself. I just I wouldn't want to put them through that. But mm -hmm. I wished I had died, no doubt. And, wow. And so then my friend, you know, it's a Sunday morning. He, uh, he, you know, goes and gets us some food. And, and so I end up turning on the TV, flipping through channels. And then I flip, you know, do you remember the, the box, the cable box? You have an A and a B course. cable, right? You of have course. to get up and push a button, right? <laughs> so I put it on the B cable and I'm flipping channels. And guess what's on? 
General Conference. No way. Which, you know, back then you still had to go to the steak center. Yeah. Probably 80% of the people were going to steak center. You'd have to be lucky if you had cable, right? right. And, and so on B cable, you know, and, and yeah. so I'm, uh, there's General Conference. And so I sit down and I start watching this. And, and this guy, uh, you might have heard of him, Dallin H. Oaks, right? He's, uh, he's starting to talk about uh, how it's never too late to live the good life. And I heard a voice. Know, pretty clear to say you're gonna be okay and you know, i didn't think there is any way and i'm just like that's just me making that up my brain kind of telling me that but clearly said you're gonna be okay and elder oaks is saying it's not too late to live the good life so i end up um having my my friend take me home and so he drives me home and and right when i get home i go right to my dad and i sit down with my dad and i end up just telling him what happened and and uh, and he just looks at me and he goes, are you okay? And then he puts his arms around me and tells me he loves me. And I mean, if your kids came to you and told you they wrecked the car and were drunk and crashed cars, I mean, it would be, how would you react? I'd get to I love you eventually. Right. <laughs> it would be hard. I'm impressed with your dad right oh, now. I for got dad stories the, I can tell you. But for that still, to be the first is pretty great, right? Sam. And that's it. So just this hug. I, I leave there feeling pretty good. I go up to my bedroom, up to my room. I get down on my knees and, you know, I pray the first time in probably five years that I say wow. a prayer. And I just bawled. I just crying, talking about everything that I've been doing. And, uh, and then I get off my knees and I feel prompted uh, to call our young adult bishop uh, who I'd never met. And I call him up and, and say, hey, I'd like to come meet with you sometime. And and he says, hey, how about tonight? You know, come and, come and see me. Wow. Yeah, which, which was big, you know, to come right then. I needed that. And so I go, I go see him, and I just came clean with everything and just confessed to how I'd been living my life the past handful of years. And, and the one question he asked, and what, what I remember, he just said, do you know that your Savior loves you? And, you know, if anyone asked me that any time before that, I was like, I don't even know if there is a Savior. And But that question in that moment, I felt my Savior's love, and I knew He loved me. And 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 that's all He focused on. It wasn't, you know, all the sins I had done. It wasn't, now let's talk about whether you're going to be in trouble for the, you know, mm. all He cared about was me knowing that my Savior loved me. Wow. And so I left His office you know, feeling so good and yet so scared because my life was going to have to change. Like, all my friends, girlfriends, I mean, everything was going to have to change. And I don't know yeah. if I could, you know, make those changes. But yeah, so I, I leave the office and and, uh, and decided to change my life. And, yeah, how was that process? Was it, uh, I mean, was this a, a, a powerful enough moment that you just, changed everything instantly was it night today it was it's crazy i i mean i went from drinking every day you know and partying all the time and to complete sobriety you know i've been sober now 28 years and um but it yeah i mean when i so all this happened and as i look at it it was everything like i knew there had to be a reason for it yeah. i mean you, you look like i drove, drove drunk all the time and i happened to do you know this accident happens on the night of general conference. And so, yeah. uh, so that's the first. And then I'm there. If my friend wouldn't have left, there's no way I'm leaving general conference on. Right. Right. And yeah. so, you know, here's this time for me to, you know, be listening to general conference. If my dad would have reacted like most parents, I probably wouldn't have gone and prayed. You know, right. if my, if I guarantee if that Bishop didn't say, come see me tonight. And he said, let's meet Wednesday night. I would have been getting high the next day you know, to not wow. have to deal with all of this. And, you know, and, and if he, ha if he would have focused on, okay, let's talk about you getting disfellowship, maybe excommunicated. Like if that would have been the talk, like, cause of my oppositional nature, I would have been like, yeah, screw, you know, I'm yeah. done. But he asked though, probably the only question he could have asked mm. that, I mean, and so all of that, you know, not wearing a seatbelt and because of no injury, like there, it wasn't a felony. If I would have been hurt or hurt anybody else, it would have been a felony. And so all of that, wow, I'm like, I know I can never deny ever in my life that yeah. God didn't have a huge hand in this, that it wasn't because, uh, you know, you can chalk one or two things up to coincidence, but 
when you start to line those things up, you know, it's you, you had a very Elma the Younger experience. I mean, I don't want to compare. No, I will. I'll make that comparison, <laughs> especially you know. I get what you're saying. You don't want to compare yourself <laughs> right, to I'm younger. Not. However, your experience, I mean, you are running around tearing down the church in your own way. Yeah. You basically lay there dead, you know, I mean, passed out, and you have this miraculous conversion. You know, I mean, it, in fact, even when, funny enough, when, when you said, I didn't even know if there was a Savior, that's what Alma the Younger said. He said... <laughs> I remember my dad talking about a savior, right. and if the savior is there, that he'd have redemption on my soul. That's amazing, Sam. Which is probably the only reason, like, I doubted whether the church, maybe the church would be true, was because of my father, right? Because I yeah. knew he would never lie to me, you know, for sure. Oh, Sam, this is awesome. So this takes you on a very different path. Yeah. What came next? San Diego State. So this happens in, in October. I'm like, almost like a rock star at church, like people giving me fives, you know, I mean, it was like, you know, going awesome. out on good dates, you know, all this stuff, you know, yeah. I mean, life is good. Um, and, and so, but then I go down to San Diego State where I don't know anybody. Yeah. And I'm thinking, all right, let's see how this goes. And, and, you know, I show up at church and I had long hair, you know, hair to my shoulders and I had hoops in each ear. And so I hadn't changed my appearance yet, right. really, you know, and, I wasn't ready to take it that far just yet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I get down, I get to San Diego and I go to church that first week. Um, one of my roommates uh, dropped me off. I had lost my license, you know, sure, because of the accident. Um, and so a roommate drops me off and, and I show up and not one person said hi to me. Not one. It was mm. like... You know, I actually left crying. You know, I go from this ward that just embraced me, right? Yeah. That ward and and to where nobody talked to me. And I'm thinking, this is going to suck. You know, it's going to be a hard, <laughs> hard semester. And and uh, so the following week, I think it's Fast Sunday because I remember fasting. And, and I couldn't get a ride from, from my roommate. And so I'm thinking, all right, I got to figure out how to get to church and hopefully it's a better experience. And so I'm praying to, to get this worked out and fasting about it and, and asking Heavenly Father to help me have a good experience. And, and so I decide, oh, I'm just going to ride my bike to church. And California, they're not on every corner, right? So sure. I was going to have to leave like 30 minutes early on right. my bike to get there. I'm like, but you know, that's an answer, I guess. You know, sure. ride your bike. Hey. So I get on my bike and I'm about to leave and, and I see two girls um, with scripture cases, you know, I'm like, they're probably Mormon. <laughs> you know? So I go over and go, Hey, you guys going, you Mormons, you going to the, you know, the church. And they're like, yeah, for sure. I'm like, Hey, can I get a ride? And like, yeah. So it's awesome. I hop in with them. Um, we get to church and, and I'm sitting. I got to stop this. Cause I just have to point out these girls see a guy with long hair, hoop earrings and everything <laughs> going, Hey, are you Mormons? Can I get in your car? Like that's that right there. That's a pretty righteous experience. Right. The fact they gave you a ride is pretty good. For sure. And then to add to that, check this out. I mean, we're so we're sitting down and we're 20 minutes early to church mm. because I was leaving 30 minutes early. So sure. we're sitting there 20 minutes. There's nobody there, you know, except a few people, somebody playing the music. And and uh, and the one girl turns the other and goes, what are we doing here this early? No way. Yeah. And at that exact point, somebody else comes up to me, introduces themselves to me and says, hey, do you need to get your records moved over here? And I heard that voice say, this is for you. Oh, Sam, I love that so much. I, I mean, who goes to church? Like, I can't get to church on time with my kids who are <laughs> teenagers now, right? Like, nobody goes. Like, and so, I mean, God somehow pushed those two out mm. the door that early because he wanted to let me know that he cares about me. Oh, you know, individually. Sam, that is so beautiful. Yeah. How long were you at San Diego State? So just one semester. Um, a, I didn't do much with school. I didn't end up transferring those grades. <laughs> I was at the beach a lot, playing some volleyball, reading the Book of Mormon a ton. Yeah. Uh, and writing a lot of letters to my future uh, wife. So talk about that. Okay. So I met her about when I was about 16 at yeah. church dance. Um, and... You know, I was partying. <laughs> so the first time I met her, a sure. lot of times we'd show up at the dances because a party got broken up. Like, let's go get free food at the church. You know, sure. At the dance. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. we And so that's when I first met her. And then over the next few, and great, 
thing is I, I told my best friend, I'm like, I'm going to marry that girl someday. Like the first time I met her. Right and on. my friend's like, yeah, right. <laughs> <I'm> like, yeah. <laughs> Again, she was way out of my league. My friend knew that. You know? And so, yeah. So then over the next few years, you just kind of got to know her more and more, hung out here and there. You know, she knew I wasn't marriage material. And nobody's <laughs> thinking about marriage at that age anyhow. But, yeah. but, you know, eventually she found out, you know, a couple of years later, because again, yeah. I hit it so well. She had no idea. <laughs> but even when she found out, you know, she still accepted me. And she would even go to some parties and and she stayed on the straight and narrow all the time, but was just never judgmental. And so, again, it was like, I want to marry this girl. That was the only reason I thought, you know, I do want to maybe do a mission someday just so I could have this girl, you know, but not because of church. You know? And by the way, everybody loves Melanie. Like. Right. No one doesn't love your wife. Growing up as a teen, every every one of my friends, everybody thought she was the coolest. Right. So, I mean, I get this. I just, right. I want our audience to know this all makes sense. Melanie was the coolest. Right. Totally. So, so yeah. So, uh, you know, um, we're kind of dated here and there, but never anything serious until that accident. So, my dad was the first person I told, and she happened to be in Hawaii, at BYU-Hawaii at that point. Yeah. And then the next day, I'm writing her a long letter which she just found just two days ago, uh, no the letter way. that I wrote and then her <laughs> response to it. And so I got her read that. And oh, that's that was awesome. really cool. But uh, yeah, so I shared with her everything. Didn't tell her it was a DUI. I just told her it was an accident because I was still really embarrassed about sure. it. Um, but yeah, so I shared everything with her. She was stoked. You so know, you're in and, San Diego. You're writing to her. She was at in Hawaii. At the in time. Hawaii. So when we get home at Christmas, we both get home. We hang out a bunch, um, start getting serious, you know, and and then she goes back to Hawaii and uh, and yeah, I'm in San Diego. Or that's when I went to San Diego. So she yeah. came back from Hawaii. We hang out. Then I go to San Diego. She goes to Hawaii. She flew me out. I got a surprise ticket in the mail, a round trip ticket to Hawaii. No way. <laughs> yeah. So, Sam, that's so cool. Right. So, so then we're at, at some point. Were you thinking, hey, maybe a mission's not on the radar. Maybe I should just get married. No, um, I wasn't thinking marriage at all at that point. Mm. I, it was sometime while reading the Book of Mormon in San Diego that I thought, I wonder if I could go on a mission. Yeah, you know, and I and I think that was right about when they were starting to make those hard lines. Yeah. you know, like you can't go for a year or something, like mm. you know. And so I didn't know if I'd be able to even go. Um, and but I decided, you know, I think I want to try for it. And so I told the bishop, and 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 then I had a come out here to Utah to meet with the general authority and yeah. which that was actually an amazing experience. Do you remember who you met with? Uh, Elder Goslin. Mm, awesome. uh, he passed away, but he was in the 70 and um, he, it was the coolest thing. He's in the middle of talking with me and all of a sudden he just stops and goes, Sam, I feel impressed to say something to you. Brother Dolan, I feel impressed to, to share something with you. And he goes, I know you understand the atonement and forgiveness, but I want you to know that if you serve this mission and you follow every rule and you're obedient and you do what you need to do, I promise you, you will not feel the pain of your sins anymore. You will know for sure that you've been forgiven. Wow. And so I walked out of there knowing that I'm going to be hardcore on my mission. So there's a part of the selfish piece is like, hey, I'm going to serve God, but I'm also, <laughs> this is for me too. I want this. Right? Yeah, and sure. so, so yeah, I was... And maybe now, if anybody from my old companions, they now they understand why I was such a hard, yeah, <laughs> so rigid, sure, <laughs> right. But I was all about being obedient. So yeah, I got my call to to go serve a mission in Brazil, um, and and it was scary being t almost twenty two, thinking sure. And, and one of my closest friends, this girl I was really good friends with, a non member, I remember her asking me, going, and so I had already had my call. I was going to leave. I was just a week away from leaving on my mission, and she says, Sam you're going to leave for two years. I mean, how do you really know this stuff is true? Yeah. Right? Like, how do you know you're not wasting two <laughs> years? And she wasn't trying to be a jerk, you know? She's just trying to actually be a friend, you know? And I and I said, well, yeah, because it's true. And she leaves, you know, and I start falling apart thinking, right, you know, like, what am I doing? I, I'm this almost 22. Like, why am I going on a mission? And mm. And crazy how quickly i forgot about all those experiences i had just had mm. within that year i'm forgetting about all of that wow. and luckily right then i get down on my knees and i pray and i ask heavenly father for help and i've only had a couple of those open up the scripture moments and i get off my knees open up the book of mormon uh, what's the best uh, the 
faith chapter ever, you know? <laughs> yeah. Alma 32, Alma 32, right? Yeah. Open that up, Plant read the that. seed. Yep. And yeah. it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, all those experiences I had, like, mm. what am I? But it's crazy how you can, you can go to that doubt place pretty quickly. Sure. Tell us about your mission. Yeah, it was amazing. I loved it. It was just the coolest experience. And, yeah. You know, I'm out there with a lot of young kids, right? These 19-year-olds. and They and, probably thought you, I mean, I had, com- I had one companion who was 26, yeah, but even the guys who came out at 22, because of how young we were, they seemed older. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you were the so, wise old man of the mission. I was the old guy. I was the hardcore, going to follow all the rules, but have a blast. You know, I was all about following rules, but just goofing around, having a good time. And yeah. uh, in the MTC, it was awesome because Mel was in the MTC. So Mel was in the MTC. Mel went to same, Tennessee on a mission, and then her friend went to Thailand. So they were both in the mission. We were all in the, or in the MTC together. That's amazing. But interesting, we had already kind of we broke things off at the end of the summer because I didn't want to have a, a girlfriend right. on a mission. Yeah. I wanted to dedicate those two years, not worry about it. But then we both ended up dating other people and she got so serious that she actually got engaged right before her mission. So she went on a mission engaged to this I other I didn't dude. know that. See, I was gone by then. <laughs> yeah. I, I left on my mission in ninety one. So I was yeah. I was gone. But I remember I don't remember how I heard it. I remember somebody telling me Mel went on a mission. I remember thinking, of course she did, because yeah, Mel's the right. coolest. Yeah. She's so cool, of course she went on a mission. And the guy tried keeping her from going by, you know, proposing to her. And Mel's so nice. <laughs> You're like, yeah, sure, let's get engaged. Yeah, She's right. on a mission while engaged. And so we're in the MTC together. Um, you know, I I've got sort of serious with somebody, but not serious where I was worried about anything, yeah. you know. And and uh but I, you know, I'd have these dreams about different girls, right? And and then I'd spend the day thinking about them. And so I'm in the MTC, <laughs> and I'm like, Lord, this isn't good. You know, I want to be thinking about you know those Portuguese. I want to be thinking about Jesus. I'm tired of thinking about all these girls and seeing Mel every day. And and so I actually, I got down and I prayed and I said, you know, can you please take the faces and names away from these girls? Like. Like, I know I'm going to dream about girls. We Guys, we're going to do that, yeah, you know? Yeah, sure. But uh, I don't want to be spending my day thinking about them. And so, I mean, a little miracle happened. I never once had another dream about a girl that I wow. knew until a fateful day in on Mother's Day, right before I was coming home from my mission. So, want to hear that story? Yes, I do. All right. I, of course so, I do. Okay. So, um, it's the night before Mother's Day, uh, a few months before I'm coming home. I end up having a dream, uh, and Mel's in it. And uh, I'm at the grocery store, and I'm looking at some, I think, frozen vegetables. And she's like, Sam, you've got to make a choice. You need to choose. And I'm like, so I wake up angry. I'm angry at God. I'm like, what are you doing to me? We had a deal, right? I'm going to work hard. I'm not going to think about home. And now you're letting me see Mel. This is, this is messed up. So I wasn't sure what was going on that day. I'm walking down the street. There's, you know, there's all these bars on the streets and music playing all the time where, you know, where I'm at. And, and remember that song? I can't remember who the artist is, uh, but it's, it was the oceans apart day after day. I don't remember that song. If I could sing it, but I'm not going to. But uh, (laughs) it was was on the cheese mix I made for my wife, you know? And so it was like, oh, are you kidding me? Now I'm hearing this song. I'm having a dream about her. (laughs) I call home. It's Mother's Day. So I call home. My little brother gets on the phone and he goes, hey, guess what? You know, Mel and her boyfriend or fiance broke up. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, I'm like, all right, God, you, I guess you, you want this as much as I did, you know? And, and so I start writing her letters, you know, being really cool about everything. And, and, uh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so then, you know, I'm like, Hey, come to my homecoming, you know, and I get home and she comes and, and, uh, yeah. (laughs) And that was it. How long after you got home where did you guys get married? So I get home, we spend the next two weeks before she has to go back to BYU, Provo. Mm. And, and so we were super serious in these two weeks. And she's about to go back there. I'm like, there's no way I can send her back there without a ring on her finger. Yeah. So two weeks yeah, after BYU being home. BYU is dangerous territory it without is. a ring. So, so I go borrow money from my parents. I go buy a ring. I take her to the temple because you can't say no at a temple. Of course I not. I propose to her there at the Oakland Temple. She says yes. She leaves. 
And instead of being apart, she decides, hey, I'm going to get you uh, signed up for classes at UVSC, <laughs> so, wow. which is now UVU. Yeah, but she sure. gets me signed up, gets me a room to live in, and uh, I move out to Provo, and we got married at the end of the semester. I keep waiting for when the vegetable section comes back into this. <laughs> maybe it's uh, maybe it's when we get to you being vegan. Maybe that's right? it. Maybe that was like a precursor. Yeah, a little kind, foreshadowing. So, yeah. At some point, I got to choose. And- <laughs> Yeah. It took a while to make that choice. I was Sam, hardcore meeting. That <laughs> is so awesome. So, all right. So you get married. You're living in Utah. Yeah. Uh, what came next? I want to get to. I want to get into what you do for yeah. a living because what you do is so fascinating to me. But uh, there were steps in between. So talk to us about where that where so, that journey took you. Yeah, ended up at uh, the University of Utah. I got my bachelor's degree there in psychology. Um, I. You know, prior to all this, I wanted to be a CIA. I wanted to be a spy. Yeah, and that was right my on. goal, right? <laughs> I was all about Jason Bourne. You know, I read all those awesome. books. Awesome. Yeah. So that was the goal. And then I was watching some stupid, cheesy, uh, made for TV movie. And it was this dad that was beating his wife or something. And I'm like, I want to beat the, you know, out of that yeah, person. Yeah, sure. And, uh, and then it hit me. I'm like, well, I wonder what happened to that guy and why he is so abusive. Mm. And that's all of a sudden I'm like, I want to help that guy. I want to help her. I want to help family. And then it's like, I want to help kids that were like me, you know? And right. so I decided that's what I want to do. So that's why I changed my major to psychology, mm. um, got my bachelor's in psychology, got accepted to BYU's post-bachelor PhD program where you get your master's and PhD in marriage and family therapy. Luckily, you know, I shared my story. I'm like, here's my first two years at West Valley at my two point, you know, <laughs> one here. And I just said, here's me on drugs and here's me sober, you know, here's yeah. my four O. And I was like the only PhD student they took that year, you know? And, That's awesome. And so, yeah, so I went to, did my graduate school, got my degree, started working in a wilderness program towards the end of my, my program. Talk to us about what a wilderness program is. Yeah. So, um, they are out in, the wilderness. Yeah. Right. Uh, they're all over the place. There's a lot of them here in Utah. Um, but it's, it's basically these, these kids that are, you know, struggling at home. Usually they're going to have some kind of substance abuse issues if you're sending them to the woods. Um, you know, sometimes for other things, but I'd say 90% are getting mm. sent because they have some wow. kind of substance abuse issues. Uh, but that's all the underlying issues of depression, anxiety, school struggles, sure. low self esteem. But they'll go out there and they're basically, I'm going to go and they're going to be hiking, you know, four days a week. They're going to learn how to take care of themselves. They're starting fires with with what's called a bow drill, you know, so they make that themselves. And it's actually one of the most powerful things. Like when you make a fire on your own out of stuff that you got out in the woods. That's so cool. So there's so many cool metaphors that you're able to use in the woods. So and there's just something spiritual about being out there in nature. Yeah. And so then the therapist comes out a couple days a week and is doing the individual sessions with these kids, doing some group therapy. And then when you're then... When you're not there, that's when they're going to be hiking and they're going to, you know, set up their shelters each day. They're going to cook together. They're going to you know, do all the stuff. So a lot of cool things happen. But it's also, and so there's, you're doing a lot of really good assessment to kind of get an idea of what they need next. Because right. um, they're only usually like eight to 10 weeks, eight to 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's not long enough to really solidify the changes that they're sure. making. Most of the kids think they're ready to go home. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a handful of kids that are going to go home and they're going to struggle. You know, and, yeah. and, and so they're going to go on to these different programs, these therapeutic boarding schools that are out there, um, after they're finished with wilderness. And so that's where, you know, I would, and there's a lot of those here in Utah and I would go visit my students at some of these different places and, and they all did a great job of kind of keeping the kids safe, doing some good therapy, um, getting them back on track in school. But the thing that I always felt like it was missing was, was you know, not being able to really individualize it for the kids and really help them find their passions. It was like each program had their niche, like we're going to be into triathlons or we're going to be into horses or cows or, you know, whatever it might be. And I just thought, you know, if a kid's going to be successful, he's got to find his passion in life. And, and it can't just be, I'm going to tell you what your passion is going to be. And so, and then the other thing is they just tend to, you know, they're, they're more in a bubble, you know, and right. they're not getting exposed to the real world. So I just thought, you know, I think I could do it differently and mm. that I can add those pieces to it. And so that's when. So what year did you open your business? In 2007. 
2007. Right Tell when you. the market was taking a I dive. I was about right? to say, 2008 was a rough year for it. Right. Not a lot of people with extra funds. Yeah. Uh, but you opened up, t- tell us the name of your business. Uh, Crossroads Academy. Crossroads Academy. And where's it located? Uh, Ogden, Ogden, yeah. Utah. So did you go out and find a campus first, a building? How did how did you start Crossroads? Yeah, so my plan was to, to do, right when I went into wilderness, I actually a few years in told the, the owners, this is what I'm doing. Um, and then I finally, my oldest brother, who was still in San Jose, we had talked about, hey, let's do a program together. You run the business side of things and, and let, let's do this. And so we had bought property and we were going to do it. And then my company came back to me, talked me into doing a program with them because they mm. made a pretty good offer, some, a lot of ownership without having to put anything in. Wow. So I did that for a year and hated it. You know, mm. I'm like, it was like 70 bed co-ed. It was, yeah. Yeah. Just did not like that. And, and, but, and then the idea we were going to do an even bigger thing with them. And I thought, this isn't my model. This isn't going to work for me. Yeah. And so I had met a guy in graduate school um, named Derek Bowles. And he, uh, he had called me up and he had a girls program and he ended up, uh, his partner kind of screwed him over and he ended up, you know, not having that girls program anymore. Mm. And, and he called me up, says, Hey, I got this property. We could buy it at zone for 16 kids and we can get going on it. And awesome. So I asked my wife, I said, Hey, we're good not making that kind of money, right? We can come do this smaller thing and, and take us some risk. And you know, Mel, she's like, Yeah, yeah, know, let's do it. Let's do it. And she's actually the one that came up with the name Crossroads Academy. Such so, a good name. Yeah. You know, you're at the crossroads, right? So, so she, so, uh, so we started that um, with Derek and myself or the two therapists. And then uh, my brother Eric that runs a, runs the business side of things and unbelievable. Yeah. So, uh, how many beds is it? Is it still sixteen? No, we expanded the following year when the market crashed. Yeah. We opened up our second house mm. and then our third house a few uh, years after that. So we have uh, forty five beds plus then a, a, a fourplex for kind of the eighteen year olds for our eighteen yeah. year old senior kids and and so that's another nine beds. We got about fifty fifty four beds. And what's the age range? Uh, 14 to 18. And it's all boys? All boys. So I've got a, let's say I've got a, a 15, 16 year old. We're very worried, seeing a lot of antisocial behavior, suspecting drugs, whatever. I think that Crossroads Academy could really add value. I call you guys, walk us through what happens from there. Well, I'm going to first make sure you've done everything prior to, to needing something like this. If you're just suspecting drug use, I would be saying, hey, you got, okay. you know, you need to be drug testing them. You need to be doing some solid family therapy, some individual therapy for them. Is there's, this there's, mostly parents coming to you or is this referrals from court? Um, what, what? No, it's, it's referrals from, so there's what's called an education consultant. Mm. And so when your kid is struggling like that, you will hire that consultant and then they're going to start making some recommendations and they're going to recommend three or four wilderness programs. And then the parent will pick one of those wilderness programs. And then while in the woods, they're doing that assessment. And they're going to say, hey, you know, here's three programs to go look at. And then that's when I'm going to get the phone call. When gotcha. I get a phone call straight from home, I'm typically going to refer it back to an education consultant or mm. to a wilderness program. We don't take kids straight from home. They have to have come from wilderness programs okay. or like a traditional rehab. You know, So you're the next step after yeah. that. Because okay. we, we don't want, like we're not a behavioral program. You know, We're not going to be rewarding, consequencing kids for every little thing. We created a place. Basically, if you have to be somewhere, this is the place to be. Work gotcha. hard, play hard, you know, and so yeah. we're, we're teaching these kids how to have fun being sober. You know, they're skiing and snowboarding four days a week. They're, you know, they're skateboarding. We have a 9,000 square foot building that has a skate snowboard shop and a big indoor skate park that they get to work at as well as, you know, skate year round. Um, we got a few wakeboard boats, so they're, they're going doing a ton of wakeboarding and, just, it just sounds awesome. I want to go. Like, yes. I really kind of want to go do this program. <laughs> right? It, it is. And yet you still are being told when you're waking up, when you're going to bed. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're not. You can eventually go on dates. Once you hit like that four-month mark, our boys can go out and get jobs and they can, you know, go on date stuff. But it's harder, you know. And so it's not home. Yeah. You know, all of our kids want to be at home. But in 13 years, I maybe maybe one kid has ever wanted to go to a different therapeutic boarding school. You know, our boys just get it. Like, and because of that, that's why we could have, you know, have a pretty laid back kind of a feel. Like if you walk through one of the houses, it would seem like it's a, you know, a, 
a, a frat house, but a sober frat house. Right. And it's yeah. that kind of thing. It's not, you don't have to have a line of sight on our boys. We give our boys some trust. If they want to go in the backyard, jump on the trampoline, skate the mini ramp, they don't have to have staff with them, you know? And so how, how long on average is a boy in your program? Nine months. So we say nine to 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got this amazing life where you are changing the lives of young men who were like you. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us uh, if, if one comes to mind, maybe an example of uh, of a boy whose life changed while they were with you at Crossroads Academy. Yeah, there's been a lot. I have probably six students right now that actually work for me, and I mean, mm. those have been some really cool stories that they've. You know, so they gone, graduated from the program, the program and came back to and work for you, coming back and working here. Gosh, um, I, you know, a student that, yeah, I mean, he was on the brink, you know, right, of, of dying, you know. I mean, I had a kid who fell off a chairlift, you know, because he was, you know, high on the chairlift and almost died. We've had, you know, these guys that, you know, I had one student um, who actually works for me now, but he, you know, he just, his home life, his parents loved him, great parents, but it's, you know, he just, they, they struggled with him and he struggled and, and he did great in the program. He was young and he ended up, you know, going home and just still struggling at home. And so we had him come back out here and live mm. with the staff. And at this point, he's now, you know, working for me, going to Weber State, you know, and, awesome. and, uh, yeah. And so you just, I, I love seeing that. I don't go usually a, a month without here. And I haven't had a caseload in about five years. I just do our admissions now. Yeah. Um, whereas before I had a full caseload and did our admissions. Mm. And so, but I don't go a month without hearing from past students, you know, and, and just how things are going. And that is awesome. Kids will struggle when they leave as well. You know, you're going to have kids that are going to still have a hard time, but they're going to still have the connections and the relationships. And, um, yeah. And then they, most of them get it figured out eventually. So awesome. How, how many kids are from Utah versus all around the country? All around the country. Like, yeah. We've had maybe six kids from Utah in our program. Mm. Out of the, so it's mostly. 400. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're coming from all over. So it's mostly not uh, Latter-day Saint kids who are coming to you. You're not a gospel-based program. Definitely not, no. What is the role of the gospel in your life as you are doing this work? I mean, it's really values-based, right? And so you're teaching values. And and to me, that's a huge piece of spirituality, right? Because, you know, you can be very religious and not very spiritual. Sure. And you can be very spiritual and not have any religion, right? Right, right. And and so for me, and what we see with teenagers and and with anybody, it's once you stop living your values, your self-esteem goes down. Mm. You know, like when I look back at my past, like I started it because of the thrill seeking, right? And it wasn't because I was depressed or anxious, which is the reason for a lot of kids today. It's a huge piece. But for me, it was the thrill seeking. But eventually when I'm 19 and 20, when I'm laying in my bed, I don't feel good about myself. Mm. You know, once I come down from that high, I don't like what I'm doing with my life. I know my grades aren't that great. I know I'm letting people down. And so that's what happens. Like we instill values in our children and they go away from those. They stop, you know, they're lying now. They're not working as hard. They're not even recreating as fun, you know, and doing Mm. these, these things or carrying their skateboard instead of using it because they're smoke, you know? And so, so your self-esteem goes down and what do you do to feel better about yourself? You smoke more pot. Right. You surround yourself with people that accept that behavior. You don't want to be around your parents because they're symbols of success. You know, it's hard to be ne- interesting. You love your parents, but you don't even want to be around them because, you know, you're not living up to their expectations. And it's OK for parents to have some expectations. That's not wrong. It's just it gets into if we're shaming them about it. Right. And, and right. But, but most kids, you know, you're not going to feel good until you start living those values again. And so that's what starts in the wilderness. Now they're working hard. They haven't worked hard in a long time. You know, they're starting to be honest. Mm. You know, they haven't been honest in a long time. So we're going to keep that going. We're going to add those the values of fun to it as well, help find those passions, and help them find some meaning to their life. And so I don't expect many teenagers to know what the purpose of their life is, but just in searching for meaning becomes meaning in and of itself, right? And so it's like, now you have goals. Like, hey, I do want to have a family someday. You know, I do want to go to college or vocational school. You know, I want to be close to family. And 
and I'm super stoked on skateboarding or wakeboarding or boxing or, you know, we got guys into rowing, playing lacrosse. I mean, there's just tons of things. And, and so now they're living this life where yeah. they become a more spiritual person. So that's where, for me, what that, that, that looks like. It's, so we, we definitely aren't teaching the gospel, but we're going to teach values. Uh, Sam, I love it. This is so neat. I think it's just incredible and incredibly necessary at a time. We have no doubt listeners right now who are listening to this who are thinking, okay, I've got a son or daughter who's not in an extreme position where they need a wilderness program and this kind of stuff, but I'm worried. I'm not connecting. What pitfalls do you see that parents fall into or what advice do you have you hear the the, the yeah. you hear your your boys telling you here's what i hated about home or whatever what advice do you have for parents for sure helping your kid like try to find those passions mm. right i mean it's it's and just making sure your kid understands that you're going to love them no matter what you know and and even if it's something you don't like them doing like skateboarding right because that's the counterculture you know kind of right. stuff or you know maybe your kid wants to get into boxing mma but you don't like violence it's like Hey, if your kid wants to do something that's active, like that's actually a good thing, you know? Yeah. And so really that's one thing is really trying to support them, help them find that. Like my kids are into music recording. I got them at makeshift recording studio. You know, I gave up half of my gym so my kids could have a <laughs> recording studio, you know? And so they need to find that kind of passion as well as hopefully something physical. Like even if my kids, my youngest loves, you know, running, volleyball, my other two, it's definitely not a passion, you know, like exercise yeah. kind of thing, but it's like, you got to find it because that's what gets those neurotransmitters firing. You got to get outdoors, mm. you know, go for walks, go for a run, you know, just, yeah, just take uh, a walk, if anything. So speaking of all this, uh, no big secret, we're not young anymore. You, yeah. you and I, we're about the same age. Yeah. We are not young men anymore. Talk about ultra marathon running. <laughs> Because we haven't even mentioned this, but Sam, you you run, and I mean you run. Right. <laughs> so how did that all get started? I was in a ward with a couple of knuckleheads that I love, these two guys that were into running, and one of them and his brother, they're trying to qualify for Boston Marathon. Mm. And so I start going out on runs with them, and I put a bucket list marathon on. I'm like, I'll do one, bu you know, one marathon. Yeah. and. And I did one and it was right above four hours. And I'm like, well, now I got to do one more to get under four hours. <laughs> <laughs> so then I do another one and I, and, uh, and then I'm like, oh, one more because it's in my backyard at Huntsville. And I go and I run that and I qualify for Boston without even knowing what that meant. And, and then I got all stoked. I'm like, well, rad. Now I'm going to go run, run Boston. Boston. But then it turns out qualifying doesn't necessarily get you in because they got more people, you know, than spots. And so I missed it by 23 seconds. And so mm. then I'm like, oh, all right. I'm gonna, now I got to beat that. Now I got to beat that. So <laughs> then I ran it the next time and definitely got in. Um, and then around that time, um, I was listening to these guys that had all, that were running ultra marathons, doing Ironmans that were, yep. had gone vegan and they had gone full whole food plant based. And they did it for recovery because they say you just recover way quicker. You know, your muscles, the, your blood doesn't have to waste all the time digesting because it can get to your body and heal your body quicker if it's not mm. dealing with the meat and dairy. So I'm like, yeah, I'll give it a try. Like, and I'm a guy who could not eat vegetables, cooked vegetables. Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> like up until I went this way, I couldn't eat broccoli. I would gag on broccoli. And so I'm like, I'll, I'll give it a try, you know, for a couple of weeks. And it was basically three years ago today, you know, wow. three, well, last week, three years ago, I'm like, I'll try this. And I went and ran my next marathon in St. George and I ran it in 307. And that was like really, you know, pretty dang fast for my age group. And, and two yeah. days later, I'm playing sand volleyball. Like normally I'm hobbling for a week. And I was like, there's got to be something that's the only thing that changed in my life. Yeah. You know, and it was, was changing my diet, was going to mm. whole food plant based. And so I did that. And then, I, uh, I ran a, a 301 and now I want to still get a sub three, you know, yeah. and then I trained for this Ironman and, you know, COVID, it really messed things it's up. A beast. COVID sucks because I was all ready to do the St. George <laughs> Ironman in May. And uh, so that was a lot of wasted training, but, and then I ran a hundred K, so a 62 miler. So that was a, a first ultra I did. And yeah. I saw pictures of that. We're friends on Facebook. Yeah. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. So, so going back, when you asked that question about, you know, parenting, the one, one story I'd share. So the helping them have those passions, 
Um, but then the, the other piece of it is just accepting our kids, loving them, mm-hmm. right? No matter what. And so that's a conversation. Like, I got that from my dad. Like, my, my dad, like, growing up, he embarrassed me a lot. You know, like, he... He would show up at, at sporting events and he's the loudest cheerleader. Like it was embarrassing. And, and I think it was good. My dad had cerebral palsy. He was born with cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. So he had a handicap, you know, his hand was, you know, he couldn't use the one hand and then he had a severe limp in his leg. And so he could never do team sports. And so I think he would come out and live vicariously through us. And, mm-hmm. and I hated it at the time. You know, sure. I'm like, dad, shut <laughs> up. <laughs> Just calm down, you know? And, and, but he would come to all these events and, and and as I'm playing, you know, I'd play in these sand, these grass volleyball tournaments, these two man tournaments there, and and you know, I'd play on Sundays, and he would come on Saturday, be rooting a ton, and then on Sunday, my dad would still show up, and he would come in a suit and tie, which was embarrassing, right there, having yeah, that sure. on. Right, <laughs> he would come, and he would be there for about ten or fifteen minutes, and he wouldn't do his cheerleading, but he would say, "Hey, that was a nice hit, Sam. You know, nice serve," and then he would leave. Mm, beautiful. And, Right. But some people would look at it like that's condoning that behavior, right? Or breaking the Sabbath kind of thing. Yeah. And so, but the message it sent me was my dad loves me no matter the choices I make in life. Right. Like I can choose anything, which when I had that accident, who did I want to go to? Yeah. Right. My dad, that's who I wanted to go see. And so I've really tried to make that clear with my kids. I mean, I've had a conversation with guys, if you end up in jail if you get pregnant if you use drugs it will not change the love i have for you yeah. you know and i don't want you to do any of those things and please don't do those <laughs> right <things. laughs> but i promise you it will not change the love like mm. it will never change that message. love right and i think you know we just assume our kids kind of know that but unless we say that you know and most of my girls tear up you know when you say something like that you know yeah. you, you just got to make that clear that if you decide that the church isn't for you, it will not change that love that I have for you yeah. ever, you know? And so I think that's something that as parents, we need to do a way better job mm. of knowing that if you're looking at porn, that's not going to change the love I have for you, right? Yeah. Like if you're doing drugs, it's not going to change it, you know? And, and then your kid's going to be able to come and talk to you about that and be able to say, I'm right. struggling with pornography, knowing you're going to be able to handle that conversation. And not worry about losing your love. Exactly. Oh, Sam, what a great conversation. What a great life. I'm so just thrilled we got to sit down and hear all of this. You're doing very, very important work. Uh, We're going to wrap up with the question that we ask all of our guests, which... I just realized I didn't prep you for this, so <laughs> so my apologies. I've heard a few of your shows, so I think I know. But it's you coming. said you've listened to some episodes, <laughs> yeah. so uh, the question, and I can't wait to hear your answer. Uh, what does being a member of the church mean to you? It means exactly what it meant twenty eight years ago, and that bishop asked me, "Do you know your Savior loves you?" And I know my Savior loves me, and that's what it means being a member of the church. That He loved me in that moment just as much as he loved me when I was almost perfectly obedient on my mission. He loves me just as much today when I'm a knucklehead and and not being perfectly obedient, that that love just doesn't change no matter what I'm doing. And, And so as a member, it means that I need to make sure everyone else understands that as well, that the Savior loves everybody you know Mm. and it doesn't matter what choices they're making what your sexual orientation is what your political views are what the color of your skin is you know we have got to focus on the love that our savior has for us and so i know my savior loves me and he loves everybody else equally and so we have to do everything we can to make sure people know that and and too often we're not sending that message we're focusing on the sin you know we're justifying it i love you but i can't accept your sin and it's like Let's just cut out that last part and just say, I love you. And just say, I love you. That's it. You know, and your Savior loves you. Uh, What a beautiful message. He is one of the founders and owners of Crossroads Academy. He is a husband, a father, and all around, I think you do every sport that I admire (laughs) and a great runner and so much more. Sam Dolan, thanks for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. And my special thanks to my friend Sam Dolan 
You know, I listened back to the conversation after we recorded and was just blown away by Sam's candor and his honesty and his humility. And he's such a good guy. And uh, Sam, just thank you so much for your light and uh, all the incredible work you do. And Mel, thanks so much for introducing me to your awesome husband. You guys are the best. Uh, this week in my Latter-day life, uh, talking to Sam actually brought up some some memories. Uh, as we mentioned, we grew up very close to each other. We actually like a lot of the same music. And uh, I haven't talked about it a ton here on the show, but I also had some really rough teenage years. And there were some years there where I was not active. And there were some years there uh, as a teenager that I was involved in some really bad things. And I was kind of able to pull things together uh, when I was 18 and uh, spent a good amount of time, maybe maybe a year, uh, staying active and ended up deciding to go on a mission and got really excited about it and went through all the process with the stake president and everything. And then it was decided that much like Sam, that uh, I would need to meet with an authority in order to be able to go on a mission. And this was a little bit difficult to put together at that time. We were coming into summer, and with travel and everything, it was hard to get an appointment in San Jose uh, to be able to meet with an authority. And our stake presidency was being changed. Uh, Subsequently, my dad actually ended up being called into the stake presidency. Uh, But that was happening at that time. But they weren't sure if the authority who was coming to do it was going to have time to meet with me or not. Now, the authority who was coming, I still remember, his name was Elder Shimabukuru, and a wonderful man, but he was a new authority, and he was being trained by Neil A. Maxwell. And so Neil A. Maxwell was coming to do our our, uh, state conference, and everyone was abuzz. And I knew my dad was going to try to uh, work with people and figure out if there was any way I could meet with Elder Shimabukuru uh, when when he was there reorganizing the stake. And so Saturday night, the night before stake conference, I got home very late. There was a note on my door that my, my father wanted me to come in and talk to him. And when I did, he said, hey, you have an interview tomorrow for your mission. And I was so excited uh, that Elder Shimabukuru was going to take this time with me And he said, no, you're meeting tomorrow with Neil A. Maxwell. Can you imagine? Here I was, a 19-year-old knucklehead, and I've got this meeting with Neil A. Maxwell. Well, it turns out that uh, as my sweet father was meeting with them, uh, that he had brought up that I was trying to get this interview done. And Elder Shimabukuru had said, sure, you bet, I will do it. And Neil A. Maxwell, hearing that that I needed to meet with an authority, said that he would like to do it, and he would like for me to meet with him. And so the next morning, I walked into our stake offices and was introduced to Elder Neil A. Maxwell. And we walked in, and I sat down across from him, and he asked me to recount the things that I had done. And as I explained it to him, I had felt so much regret and sorrow in my soul for the things, the mistakes that I had made. And when I got done, he said, I can tell you are sorry. I can tell you are contrite. And he said, you will never have to share that again. And he said, I want you to watch this. And he took my mission papers and he signed them at the bottom. And so my mission papers had Neil A. Maxwell's signature on it. And then uh, he said, do you mind if I just take these personally back to the church offices? I told him I thought that would be just fine. And then there was another 15 or 20 minutes before the conference was going to start. And he said, well, I wanted to make sure we had enough time, but now there's nothing else to do until conference. And he said, so what else do you do? And we began talking about uh, skateboarding and surfing and music and all kinds of things that I remember specifically, he told me about his great love of the Beach Boys and how much he loved the Beach Boys music. And I look back at it now and I go, I had Neil A. Maxwell. I had a private audience. And we didn't talk about the atonement. We didn't talk about scripture. We talked about the Beach Boys. <laughs> but I wouldn't change it because to see him as such a human, uh, to stand there in front of an apostle of the Lord was amazing. And after about 15 or 20 minutes of just chatting, 
Uh, he said, let's go. It's time to go. And we walked out of that office and he put his arm around me and he walked me into, uh, into the, into the uh, chapel and he walked me all the way up to the front row. My mom was sitting on the front row and he walked me all the way up to my mother. And of course the whole ward is, or the whole stake rather is sitting there watching this. And he walked me up to my mother and my mom stood and she said, sister Rapier, your son is going on a mission. And, you know, we just finished conference and we hear the apostles talking about reaching out to the one and how every soul is so important. And they mean it. I know they mean it because of experiences like this. I remember when Elder Maxwell passed away. And I always get emotional when we lose an apostle because we form these bonds with him. But when Elder Maxwell, when I found out he passed away, I cried. And oh, how I cried because I got to be the one to Neil A. Maxwell. He loved me. He knew me. And when he says he is a representative of the the Lord, man, these apostles are representatives of the Lord. They are special witnesses. I felt the Lord's love that day, and I felt the authority. I felt it all. And what a blessing it was to get to be the one, and what a special experience that I will never forget for the rest of my life. And being able to think about it as Sam was sharing his story was such a blessing still. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in this week and every week. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the show and you think of someone who uh, could use these uplifting conversations, we would love it if you would share it with them. We are especially grateful for friends who share this on social media. You know, you can share our posts on Facebook or on Instagram And uh, if you're not following us on social media, we would love it if you would. Uh, Go just search for Latter-day Lives, and we're very easy to find. Well, I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 